My name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Hey everybody, welcome back to the KingCast. My name is Eric Vespi and I'm joined as always by my brother from another mother, the chocolate to my peanut butter, Mr. Scott Wampler. Hello everyone. Our guest today is an actor, writer, director, and producer. He's had a massive impact on the horror genre from co-creating the Saw franchise and the Insidious franchise to directing back-to-back bangers, Upgrade and The Invisible Man, which could very well be the last truly great new movie to hit theater screens for, Mm -hmm. I don't know, what, two or three years? Uh, Everybody, please welcome Mr. Lee Winnell to the KingCast. Hey, guys. How are you? (laughs) Living the dream. You? Oh, yeah. Living the dream. I I realize that uh, quarantine without children is just my 20s. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. um, I, uh, but, I, but I do have children, so I'm not living the quarantine dream, which is waking up at noon and watching Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 2. I'm, I'm doing the other quarantine, waking up at 6 and convincing two screaming twins that oatmeal tastes good. So, <laughs> you're a dad. I'm a dad and I'm happy to be a dad. Love dads. Yep. I know I'm supposed to say something like that. And c- congratulations on your ridiculous timing to uh, have released a movie right before the world shut down. No so now, uh, so now it's all over. Uh, like anytime any movie is screening anywhere, it's <laughs> invisible man. and Sonic the Hedgehog. I've said this before, but I'm split. Some mornings I wake up and I'm glass half full. I'm like, Oh man, how lucky were we that we got out just under the wire we were the last movie that people went and saw in theaters. And then on other mornings, I'm Larry David. And I'm like, <laughs> I cannot fucking believe that I finally, I made a movie that people want to see en masse. And it comes out three weeks before a global pandemic. Um, <laughs> so it depends. It depends. Everyone I speak to, of course, takes the glass half full view because they're trying to, stop me from jumping off a bridge so they're like it's great you were but yeah definitely so it depends on the which way i look at it but um but now that now that enough time's passed and the invisible man is still sitting pretty in the itunes top five movies every time i every time i turn on apple tv and i see elizabeth moss moss's face the sting of leaving theaters early gets a little bit less painful there were a lot of people myself included where invisible man was the last movie i I saw in theaters. I, it was my second time because I saw it on the press screening. And then I went back with my wife and saw it when it opened. And uh, there's a lot of people I know where that's the case. I think it's pretty cool to have to, for a lot of people to have that memory. Yeah, it's, it's pretty. I, I would actually it wouldn't be bad if movie theaters just never opened again. And it was, it was, <laughs> it was the last movie that people saw before the pandemic. It was the last movie people saw ever. That would be kind of amazing. <laughs> We're not too far away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, that that may yet still happen. We we don't know. <laughs> if things keep going the way they're going, you're a shoe-in for uh, a Best Picture nomination just by default. So, And you know what? I, it, it wouldn't have been the last movie I saw in theaters, except uh, I had an invite to a press screening of Bloodshot, which um, <laughs> my, my friend and I went to the press screening, and we had a number of drinks beforehand, and then we got to the theater – and the movie, something with a digital file got fucked up. So, like, it started and then stopped. And then the minutes just kept going by. And uh, almost like half an hour passed. And then uh, she and I were like, fuck this. Let's just go. We'll just go see it, like, next weekend or whenever it opens. And we're like, yeah, whatever. You know, just, like, blowing off the entire experience of going to the movies. Because we could do it whenever we wanted. Who cared? Right. Uh, I I really regret that now. I would I would kill a family member to see bloodshot in a movie theater i think really <laughs> I, I, the only thing i know about bloodshot is that vin diesel predicted it was going to make 700 million dollars in theaters yeah i am i've got to imagine it cleared at least that much through video on demand you know it seems like a reasonable estimate nice uh i did hear someone talking about bloodshot on brett easton ellis's podcast his him and his guest were talking i think it was brett easton ellis but they were talking about the fact that Bloodshot was very similar to Upgrade. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. 
Oh, which which reminds me, I I fucking love Upgrade. Upgrade is so good. Like oh. I, every time I watch, like I watched it just a few weeks ago. I think whenever we finally locked you into the show, and I, I my wife and I rewatched it again. I'm like, I should watch this movie like every month. Like I love this movie. It's one of those movies. It's so fun to watch. Like, thank you for Upgrade. I love it. Oh, thanks. Oh, cool. Not a bad way to start. Eric, uh, yeah. Eric doesn't like Upgrade, I think is what's Oh, called. that trash. It's trash. No, I love Upgrade, of course. Well, the, Lee knows this. Is right now, the hardcore Stephen King fans are like, who cares about this guy's movie? Let's talk about Stephen King. <laughs> Let's talk about Stephen King. Uh, yeah. What's the what's the title that you that you picked? I picked The Body, which, of course, was made into the film Stand By Me. Never heard of him. Never heard. Um, both of both the story and the movie had a big impact on me. I would probably say the movie had a, a bigger impact um, because, you know, the, 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 the movie just kind of ripped my head off. I, I loved it so much. But, um, but, yeah, that's my pick. That's my pick for this episode. Stand by Me isn't just like a top five Stephen King adaptation for me. It's like in it, it's an all timer movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, very much like you. It means a whole lot to me. But before we get in all that, uh, I would very much love to hear your Stephen King origin story. Like, how did King enter your life? Like, what is the 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 thing that got you interested in this dude? Was it the movies? Was it the books? What was it? Well, it was. The books were my gateway drug to King, which obviously is, you know, that is his main focus. That's what he did. Um, Because when I was younger, I wasn't allowed to watch any movie that was made from a Stephen King book. I was not allowed to watch. Um, When I was sort of, you know, pre-teens, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten years old, my parents uh, were not cool with me watching Carrie or or, uh, (laughs) Cujo. So I could find access to the books, of course, because you would go over to someone's house and, you know, a a movie, I'm I'm old enough that you had to go through a process to get a movie. You guys may remember that ancient structure known as the video store. Oh, Um, yes. I couldn't just walk into a video store and, and rent a movie like Carrie, but if I was at someone's house and they had Carrie on the shelf and nobody was looking, I could pull it off. And so my first... My first exposure to Stephen King was going over to a friend's house and his parents had a King collection on their bookshelf and, and, and when no one was around, I would sneak these books off and I wouldn't read the whole book. Obviously, I didn't have time, but I would flip through the pages until I saw something interesting and gory <laughs> and read. I remember, I remember pulling Carrie off the shelf at this particular house I'm thinking of and I flipped through the pages until I found the scene where she's destroying everybody and I was reading it. And, you know, as you guys know, with with King, his ability to describe violence or terror is just unparalleled. Um and and it was it it was truly incredible. So I would say that was my first exposure to Stephen King was basically um stealing glances at paperbacks that were left around. Is that how you came across uh, the body, or is that something you discovered later when you like were active? Because it seems to me like nobody picks up different seasons and goes, "I'm going to go try to find all the gory, <laughs> you yeah, know, exactly. the, the the gory stuff." Yeah, different seasons. I remember again. That was another book. It may have even been the same house, the same, the same house. My friend Josh, and um, after I saw Stand by Me. Then I wanted to find. I had seen in the credits that was ba- that it was based on the story, the body, and I loved the movie so much in such a in such a strong way that I wanted to read that story. And so I grabbed um, different seasons off the shelf and I sat and I read the body. And it, you know, it was a, sh- a short enough story, a, a novella that I could get through it. And um, so it was sort of like the movie guiding me to the book. In that case, you know, it was. Um, a rare case of, of of seeing the movie before the book. Yeah, yeah. I mean that 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 was my intro to most of King. I started reading King when I was in sixth grade, and and I always started with the stuff that I'd already seen the movie for. Right. Um. And so it was like you know Cujo, Carrie, The Shining, and and I knew Stand by Me. It, it, it's so funny because in the pre-internet days, 
it's not like it would have been readily available knowledge that okay the body is is stand by me so i like i remember like on one of my many like vhs you know watchings of that of uh, stand by me that i actually clocked at the end when it's it like you said name checked Yes. Uh, the novella, the body. Yep. And I was just like, okay, that's what it's called now. Now what, what is that? And I remember like looking through the library, the school library, like looking for through like the short stories and not finding it. And then finally, you know, finding the different seasons book is always like a detective, you know, process well, to try to track down this, the short. Yeah. There's a couple of things that are striking about the body. The first one is that, just in a general sense, it's it's really a reminder at how amazing Stephen King was at short stories. Mm. Obviously, everybody talks a lot about his novels and these iconic books that he's he's written, The Shining, Carrie, etc. But he's such a master of short stories. Like his short stories can become some of the best films you've ever seen. I mean, if you look at the Shawshank Redemption, which I believe is featured in the same book as The Body, yeah. um, it. It, it's such a brilliant movie. Like I, I, I feel like Stephen King could write a grocery list, and it would be adapted into an Oscar-winning film. Like it's, <laughs> it's this incredible ability of his to be an ideas factory. You know, as someone who's a, a writer myself, I find the hardest part of screenwriting by far is the idea, coming up with an original idea, because there's no. There's no book you can read to help you come up with ideas. There's tons of books you can read about structure and, yeah. you know, uh, where, you know, at what point should the exciting incident happen? You know, not that I listen to that stuff, but ideas are really mysterious. And I just, St- Stephen King's, his, his prolific idea um, machine that goes on in his brain is incredible to watch. And I feel like the it, the body is a and is is an example of that. It's it's um to a lot of other writers this would be their best work. And oh, yeah. instead for him it's a shortish story slash novella in a collection of other stories. Like he is so overstuffed with ideas that even other writers' best work he just slots it into a collection. You know, yeah, the third story in a four story collection. Yeah, exactly. And then the other the second thing that I find striking about the body that maybe doesn't come up as much is that Stephen King is obviously known as a horror writer. That's his that's his identity. But he is such an incredible writer of non horror stories as well. I mean, just yeah. um, the Shawshank Redemption and, and the body are two examples of even though they have elements to them that he always dances around the edge of horror, like involving a body in the body and and the terrors of prison. I, I feel like Stephen King doesn't get enough credit for his non-horror stories, which is which are just as beautiful and amazing. That's true. And I would like to loop back around to this idea of coming up with the idea is the hardest part. Because as as you were talking about this, I was thinking, well, Stephen King is blessed with, you know, a mind that can conjure these ideas, but also then put them into words that people want to read. Yes, and I'm yeah. thinking this, the existence of such a person also implies that there must be someone out there who is just coming up with ideas left and right, but they couldn't string three fucking sentences together to <laughs> save their lives. You know, those, that like that person is probably telling their friends like, so I got a new idea for a movie. And they're like, oh, Jesus Christ, dude, like. We've we've seen your scripts. Like it'll never work. You come across that every day in Los Angeles because every cab driver, every hairdresser is like, "Oh, I have a screenplay," and 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 everybody has an idea. Like I'll often get somebody saying to me, "Oh, you're a screenwriter. I've got an idea for a movie." And you're right. It's it's one thing to have an idea for a movie. I feel like everybody, from my dad to the waiter in the restaurant I went to, that that. They all have one great idea for a movie, but they can't sit down at a computer and put and put in the work to get it to get it over the line. And that's actually really tough. I, I still think having an idea is tougher, but it's actually executing on the idea and completing it that is that that's what separates the the wheat from the chaff. Absolutely. I, and then the if you're talking sauce. about novels, you know, you're talking about like a. In King's case, sometimes like a 900-page document, you know. It's, it's <laughs> like crazy. You and you're like, it is like, I, I look at that book 
and hold it in my hand and I'm like, how did someone keep writing for this long? Like, <laughs> how do you even keep going? You know, he, he, he is unable to stop. He is compelled to keep telling stories. It's like an addiction for him. For sure. Have you had periods uh, where you've struggled to come up with an idea and oh, like, yeah. how, do you, how do you deal with that? Like, what are those weeks, months, years like? Yeah, I mean, that period is called my entire life. Uh, <laughs> there is no amount of time where that happens. It's just all the time. Um, it's really tough. I mean, coming up with it, this is why so many films are based on IP, books or um, comic books, video games, because ideas are just tough. And I know there's other reasons for movies based on IP, economics reasons. Studios will say, well, we... We want people to know about the movie before it exists. So if it's based on a popular video game, but I think one of the other reasons is because it's just really hard to come up with a singular great idea. Um, you can't, like I'll sit there with a notepad. I mean, I'm sitting in my home office right now and I'll sit here for an entire day with my notepad and it's, 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 it's easy for me to come up with 10 ideas, but none of them will be good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's hard is to is to have something happen, and you and you don't know when it's going to arrive. That's what's frustrating about it. It's there's no process you can go through that can help an idea suddenly appear in your brain. It's it arrives when it wants to arrive, and that's very frustrating. Um, you sort of have to wait on it, and and um, yeah, <laughs> it's it never gets any easier. We should probably look at the origins of the body and the afterward to different seasons. He talked about how each of the novellas in it were things that he wrote after he finished a book. So they're not quite short stories they're not quite novels, but each one of them were like the palate cleanser he did after he finished writing a novel. And uh, the body was what he wrote after Salem's Lot. Um, so in between Salem's Lot and The Shining, this is that's when he wrote the body. I only think he could write a masterpiece as a palate cleanser. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so what's interesting there though, is like, I think the long walk he wrote in, in college, that was part of his, his Bachman period of, yeah. uh, of work. And, uh, both of those involve, uh, children walking great distances. Yep. Uh, but, uh, it's, it's really interesting to me how personal the story is to him. Um, it, I mean, listen, King, almost every protagonist in every King story is a, a writer in Maine. So of course he always puts himself in, <laughs> into uh, his books at some point, but like Gordy Lachance is Stephen King. And he's been very upfront about like the leeches scene happened to him when he was a kid. When you, when you watch the, the, the movie, it's so obvious that it's, it's the young writer in training. He's, he's, you, you realize that this, this character is going to be a great writer one day. There's no doubt about it. You know, um, one thing that I didn't notice until recently, because I watched uh, the film Stand By Me uh, uh, very recently uh, in, in, in preparation for this. And um, like you, Eric, it's a, it's a film that I love. It's not just one of my favourite Stephen King adaptations. It's one of my favourite movies of all time. And one thing I noticed recently is that, I, and, and, and I didn't notice it when I was a kid, or maybe I noticed it but didn't focus on it, is that the movie is really like an, orgy of 50s nostalgia oh yeah yeah today today you know people will say things like oh stranger things that's that's just pure nostalgia porn for for 80s kids and it is you know obviously the bmx bikes the walkie talkies you know the et references and some people will write it off as nostalgia porn i realized that um that's what stand by me was for Stephen King, you know, as a kid, when I watched that movie, I didn't have a reference for the fifties, nor did I care. And the movie, it certainly, because they were out in the woods up for a lot of the time, you didn't, it didn't, it wasn't hitting you over the head that it was the fifties aside from the music in a way that it would be if they were in the city. But it it was basically stranger things for that time. It was him. It it makes me feel better about doing nostalgia because I kind of showed Mm -hmm. it. The, the inner critic that sits on my shoulder will say something like, oh, don't make a film set in the 80s. That's been, you know, everybody's doing that and all it is is just you being nostalgic. But Stephen King managed to spin this amazing timeless story out of his affection for the 50s, which is the time that he grew up in. And, it, yeah, I just, I just, I guess I just really noticed it in this recent watch. I really noticed 
the 50s nostalgia more than ever. You know, this and not was just King, Rob Reiner too. I mean, that that was his, yeah, his right. look into yeah. it. This was the first King movie that I think I saw. Uh, I, I sort of going back in my memory, I can gauge when I saw certain things by where I was when I saw them. And I remember seeing this one in like the first house I can remember living in, which means I must have been six or seven, maybe five, like really young. And my parents watching it with me. And I didn't have a frame of reference for the 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 time and place, you know, the 50s. Yeah. I could tell they responded to it, you know, like as you're saying. But the the universality of the the friendship between those guys, I think, transfers over. So if you were if you were a part of that, you know, decade, if you if you lived through that, you know, you experienced the movie through that lens. And I can watch this movie today and identify myself and and certain friends within this friend group and you know, some of the, the clothing's different, the music's different, whatever. But at the end of the day, it's the same thing. It's like these these people that you dearly love when you're very young and you grow up and go in all in different directions, you know. You well, might you not even up, keep in bring up a really good point, which is that for Stephen King and, and and people who grew up in the fifties, stand by me is 50s nostalgia for for people of my age stand by me is 80s nostalgia because it's a movie as you just said yeah. it's a movie from that time so somehow somehow a 50s movie becomes 80s nostalgia um even though there's no bmx bikes in sight there's no star wars figures somehow when i think of stand by me i think of my childhood in the 80s and one thing that really happened, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a guess that this happened to you guys as well, a little bit of background where, where I grew up in Melbourne. I grew up in the outer suburbs of Melbourne in Australia. Um, in fact, at the time, not anymore, but at the time the suburb I lived in was the last suburb before Melbourne became the country. So obviously, you know, when, when cities expand, there's this point where the suburbs suddenly stop and there's trees and stuff. And that's where I lived, right at that edge. Today in 2020, the suburb that I grew up in is like the middle of Melbourne because they've expanded so much more. But at the time, my house, which was very much a suburban house, over my back fence was farmland. There was huge paddocks and there was this one basically a dirt road called Kathy's Lane that was over my fence, Kathy's Lane. And after, I, after my friends and I saw Stand By Me, and this is the part that I'm guessing happened to you guys as well, I became obsessed. My friends and I were obsessed with packing up a little rucksack and going off walking <laughs> and staying the night. We, we jumped into Kathy's Lane. I asked my parents if we could camp and we walked, we walked all the way up Kathy's Lane and we ended up camping in this. And it was like we were trying to recreate the movie. Yeah. And it was like, it was an obsession. Like the, the walking, I just wanted to live the movie. I wanted to be in the movie. And we, we did our best to recreate it, even though we were probably less than a mile from our house. It felt like we were way out in the woods, you know? And, I didn't uh, have that, that exact experience you know, as, as it pertains to stand by me. But interestingly enough, I did have an experience that sort of mirrors it in that we, we, Clown we, into the sewer one day. well, we, we live, you had an orgy in the sewers. Well, I'm going to uh, stop any number of jokes I have for that line, but, um, <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I grew up in the, the suburbs of Dallas. It was, uh, you know, uh, a nice area. <laughs> and the the um the the development itself was bordered by a lengthy creek and this was you know overshadowed by a number of trees and you know scrub brush and all that shit but what was really curious was that uh scattered throughout this creek that ran all the way along the side of this housing development were, were um sewer tunnels that were big like you know i bet if we if you know, the three of us went down there today, we'd have to like crouch down to get in them, but we were kids and, you know, you could stand inside this thing and there was a foot of space above you. They were, they were fucking huge. And so there were these rumors that like punk kids older than us, like 15 years old, you know, were coming down there and sacrificing cats and, you know, 
all kinds of stories like that. But you would like go, we would go into the, the, those sewer tunnels and sort of explore them. We went, we went really far, like dangerously far back into those tunnels a few times. So I associate that experience more with right. my childhood than, uh, than, than okay. any sort of camping he's great, trip. Or, he's great on, he's great at touching on these common things. It, 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 it's a very sort of, uh, Spielberg quality that he shares yeah. with he's able to take really common experiences that your average kid has and somehow shoehorn horror into that experience do you know what I mean and so you you yeah. recognize these elements from your own life I don't think I don't think that's an accident I think that Stephen King probably had a similar drain situation in the town he grew up in and when he was sitting there in his office one day in in Maine thinking about a story he realized that there was a horror movie there so if you're talking about the chicken or the egg i i don't think it was your childhood that was uh, affected by king's imagination it was it was king's childhood that affected his stories yeah and and as you said with the body he actually fell into a creek and got leeches on him and that made its way. I bet you several of the incidents in the body, I'll, I'll, I'll bet good money without knowing, which in the internet era is as good as knowing, um, that, um, <laughs> that, that several of the anecdotes and little subplots in the body were things that occurred to him in his hometown, you know? Oh, they got to be. Yeah, no, he, he's been very upfront about about that, and, and not that it's not obvious. I mean, the character of, of Gordy, you know, grows up to be a, a popular, uh, popular author, and he taught in English in high school or high school English before he, you know, became an an author and had three kids. And it's like he, the Gordy that he describes, the grown up Gordy, is uh, it, it's just him describing himself, you know, in, in his journey, as played by Richard Dreyfus. I mean, one thing I, I made a note to talk about with you guys something about this. I know it's the King cast, but I just want to spend a couple of minutes acknowledging something that I really don't feel is acknowledged by the film, the genre film community or the film community as much as it should, which is the incredible run that Rob Reiner had Mm -hmm. in the 70s. What a run. Like the guy went from This Is Spinal Tap to, you know, When Harry Met Sally, uh, Stand By Me, Misery. Like he... I, few good men. Few good yeah. men. Have you ever seen Princess Bride? Princess yeah. Bride. Like, let's 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 just break this down for a second. And I know that <laughs> in the right chronological order. Right. What other filmmaker do you know that tried their hand at a mockumentary, basically invented it, and it's a classic today. It's it's widely known as the most classic mockumentary of all time, if not the mm-hmm. founder. Of the then they decided to try their hand at a kid's story. Oh, boom. Classic of all time. Eight out of ten people that you asked would name The Princess Bride as their favorite children's movie. Oh, you want to try a thriller? Yeah, let's try Misery. Boom. Mm-hmm. Classic Oscar-winning thriller. Like, oh, romantic comedies. Like, you, we know, everyone talking right now, we know that the like horror, romantic comedy is a genre where there's a lot of bad versions of it. The, the, the good romantic comedies are few and far between. The ones that are good are great, but... When Harry Met Sally might be my favorite romantic comedy of all time, and it's just incredible to me that all those movies are made by the same guy. It's really, it's astounding. Yeah. Well, he, here's here's what's really crazy is everything that you mentioned is the gold standard for their particular subgenre. Yeah, Stand yeah. by Me is the gold standard of the coming of age story. Like I, I don't. There is nothing that that is made now that isn't inspired by it has to reference it and, you know, pay uh, uh, homage to it in some way. There's nothing that came before it that, that hit the the same level. Uh, Stand by me is the gold standard of the coming of age story. And spinal taps, the gold standard of, of mockumentaries when Harry met Sally is the gold standard for rom-com. There wouldn't, there wouldn't be a meeting in, in, in a studio in Los Angeles. There wouldn't be a studio meeting if they were talking about making a romantic comedy, you know someone in that room is going to bring up When Harry Met Sally. As you said, it right. is old. Like this guy had a run where one after the other, he made the gold standard for each genre. Like, you know, the only other person I can think of, this is blowing my fucking mind right now, This, this that you pointed this out, because I'm thinking like, is there any other director comparable to that? And the only name I'm coming up with is Kubrick, who made 
every time he set out and made a movie in different genres, he right. dominated that shit. You know, when you think of a sci-fi, like classic yeah, sci-fi movie, 2001, 2001, classic period Absolutely. drama, fucking Barry Lyndon, classic sex movie, Eyes Wide Shut, horror movie, Shining, you know, like. Yeah, he kind of dropped the mic. It, it is incredible. Like he, it's funny because like I, you, you were thinking Kubrick and for a second, my mind went to Spielberg and obviously he's a, a master and a genius. But if you think about it, what, what Reiner has is the disparity between the genres, like Spielberg never really tried his hand at a straight up romantic comedy, right? I mean, I guess I, actually now we could get into a, a film Twitter argument because I can see people saying, what about, you know, the term always, always, exactly. Always, yeah. So I'm, I don't, I don't want to get into that argument. They're exhausting. <laughs> what, what's interesting about Reiner compared to Kubrick and Spielberg is that each movie was so different from the last, like when Harry met Sally is so different than misery and it's, it's really always been amazing to me that Rob Reiner doesn't get more credit as a filmmaker, at least in the sense that I don't hear him being mentioned as much as people mention Kubrick mm-hmm. or Nolan or, or Fincher. And that's weird to me because, as, as, as Eric just said, um, it, 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 he made the gold standard for all these genres. Who else has done that? Well, I think the problem is that Reiner hit a stumbling block with North and then after that just like never had never came out with anything that was kind of up to that uh, gold standard, you know, quality. Uh, I mean, you could say the same thing about John Carpenter, like after after a certain point, Carpenter just like, look, I think, you know, know, just kind of stopped. But like. But Carpenter had a run unlike anybody else too. I mean, from I, I'm not a huge Dark Star fan, but from Assault right. on Precinct 13 on through, I guess his stumbling block is Memoirs of an Invisible Man. But uh, I like that you know, movie. everything up to there. I thought, and I like I like Memoirs. Yeah, but it's you know, the v- Village of the Damned. Nobody can defend though that that movie's fucking. Yeah, that's true. But, uh, that's true. Well, I think I think filmmakers in some way are like bands. Like if you go to a Rolling Stone concert, not many people are like, play something from Voodoo Lounge. You know, it's like <laughs> they, they want to hit that one here. You know, six albums. Oh, fuck. The, the band is frozen in time. If if if, if you go to a, a Pearl Jam concert, all it, every, everybody wants to hear those first three albums, and the and I, I feel like the band knows that too. They're still creating, they're still making work, but. At a certain point, I guess what I'm saying is I think artists have a window, whether they like it or not. Some 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 people's window goes on for a long time. It's like, yeah, oh, my the God. Scorsese's of the world. Yeah. The Scorsese, exactly. Like, he doesn't seem to have an off switch. But if you look at Carpenter, I just look at it like the Rolling Stones. I'm like, his 80s run from 1980 to 1990 is like, unmatched. It's crazy. Like, and and for 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 someone like me who loves genre movies, you know, um, and so I don't, I don't, I don't think about anything else. I, I focus on the movies that he made that were such big contributors yeah. to the industry. And, um, and I think, you know, uh, I, I, I think it's like that. I mean, funnily enough, you talk about artists like Scorsese who don't seem to have a window. They just go on and on like the Energizer Bunny. I think King is one of them. I mean, he's still cranking out yeah. And and by the way, you, one could make an argument that he's more popular than ever. He's well, got at least one podcast about him. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's he's going through a new golden era because uh, they're they finally started making King movies, and they were like bringing a budget to them, and they were bringing actual directors of you know every fucking trailer you see right now is like from the visionary director of, and it's. <laughs> Some movie you you forgot you saw two years ago, you know, but <laughs> but they're actually bringing in people that have a vision now to to make Stephen King shit, and it's it's paying off in in spades, you know. So yeah. we're living through like a golden age of 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 King movies right now. I, yeah, I think eventually we're gonna hit a, a real bad one, and that'll you know, be the speed bump. But yeah, exactly, exactly. I don't know that he's had the sort of mainstream respect that he has now. Like if you go back and read reviews in the 80s of King novels, yeah, sure, you had some critics that liked him, but a lot of people wrote it off as just genre trash. Like the horror genre was so looked down on, you know, that it was it was like, ah, yeah, this is good, like guilty pleasure airport reading. 
Now I feel like, as as often happens with critics, if you look at a movie like The Thing or, you know, it's everybody has to admit they were wrong 20 or 30 years later. And um, that's well, what... And there's also, there's also something else to that in that all the book critics now grew up with King. Like all, all the old guard, you know, when he first came <laughs> on the scene, grew up with their own thing that they probably... Yeah, they had an attachment to, but everybody who's reviewing books now grew up with King. So, of course, he's going to get more glowing reviews now. He's an elder statesman now, too. It's like, uh, you know, (laughs) if you hang around long enough, you'll get respect. And so he's he's, he is basically an institution. He's a he's an American institution. He's a horror institution. He's comfort food. Like, I don't know what I'm going to do in a world that's not that doesn't have new king novels coming out right you know i think what's happening now it's funny we're talking about the 50s nostalgia of stand by me and the i think for a lot of people these new movies for the directors i think a lot of them a lot of them it's nostalgia for them about their youth and and how that book made them feel when they were 10 years old king has you know he has a history of of doing a lot of stories like this with Groups of kids, some more successful than others. Yeah, you, you know, for every that. Stand by Me, there's a dream catcher. You know, as in life. <laughs> but um, he he's he's got a Norman Rockwell eye for that period in your life, and yeah. for how it affects you and the things that scare you during that time. And it's just something about it is very American to me. Uh, I don't know, yeah, for sure, I don't know why that is, and maybe it's the Norman Rockwell comparison. Uh, but there's also some Spielberg in it. It's these it's these classic storytellers that are, you know. Uh, well, the interesting is that Spielberg was making movies of their time, like E. E. T. Sure. was not nostalgia. It was like it was like set in the '80s, which is why it, now it's this time capsule and it's become nostalgia. But King really was writing from this '50s place. He, it, it's this very '50s, like you know the the bad kid in school always had a name like scab or something, you know, it was always like yeah. eyeball, yeah. Yeah. eyeball, eyeball Cooper or whatever his name was, you know, chambers. Yeah. Eyeball chambers. And, and, and it's a very fifties, like stickball Brooklyn Dodgers, you know, it's, it's like a, and scab and eyeball came over and they, they pulled out a switchblade and their hair was slicked back and they were listening to like, you know, rockers. They were listening to their rock. And it's, it's very, very, um, it's it's amazing that his writing is so good that people who weren't of that time could overcome that and just take it on at face value. Like, yeah. like I guess as as you guys mentioned before, the universality of his characters and situations and stories kind of transcends that nostalgia. You know. Well, I mean, that's it. That's his strength is is in uh, he's got many strengths, but the thing that I think sets him above the rest is his ability to create character. And characters that you give a shit about, and uh, and kind of show that how they bond with each other. They're they're believable. They're relatable. Everybody's you know had a friend like Vern. You know that that fucking doofus that everything and everyone just goes, knows goes over your head. And, Teddy Duchamp, and, you know, yeah, and a Teddy Duchamp. It's it's um one thing I noticed from the from the uh the, reading the book uh, the novella the body as compared to the movie is the story has that quintessential King detail, you know, where he'll just sideline for a few pages to tell you the backstory of, you know, he'll really, he'll really go off and spend like a page describing somebody's belt buckle, you know, and Uh I I noticed in in the book version of, of Stand By Me in the body, there's a lot more of that detail, like one sequence that comes to mind and it's been a while since I read the body. um, But one sequence that comes to mind is when um, Vern is under the porch digging for his pennies like in the movie, it's really a, this quick thing that's glossed over. But in the book, it really goes into, it really tells the story of how he lost these pennies and the whole story. And first he dug over there and then he dug over there and then he dug over there. Yeah. I, I guess you get a lot more detail in, in, in the King story than you do in the movie, which obviously a movie has to do. Um, but um, um, it was interesting reading the story after I'd seen the film because I was like, it felt like I was seeing all the scenes that had been cut. I was like, oh, okay, so this is what, it, it was just much more um, detailed than the movie was. Right. Well, here's, I, I hadn't read The Body since maybe middle school, early high school. Um, and I reread it going into this and I remember it being fairly uh, fairly close to the the movie. But rereading it now, I was 
shocked at how because we've done a lot of these and we've I've reread a lot of King and I'm seeing like okay well they they took this section like Kubrick took the uh, the Dick Halloran you know uh, uh, talking to to Danny you know about the Shine and the Shining you know almost word for word from the book but in the body this adaptation the screenwriters are you know had a fucking uh, easy job on this one because I'd say. 80% of yeah. of the movie is a direct lift. Not like, oh, they took this dialogue here. There's like five minute chunks of the movie that is nothing but just the dialogue King wrote. Yeah. Maybe yeah. like a couple of sentences edited out for clarity or something, but everything else is like this movie structurally in character in dialogue is probably the most faithful it's King faithful adaptation of all. It is definitely the most one one to one that I we've come across on on this re- revisit run. And I guess if you think about it, like Carrie was written in this very particular style that was like newspaper reports, you know, right. back. And then obviously the movie didn't do that. And The Shining, of, we all know about the changes that were made to The Shining, <laughs> yeah. Not least uh, of which King uh, is is knows about it. Um, but if you think if, if if you think about the body, maybe because it was a, a novella and it wasn't as like if you're dealing, if you're trying to adapt it into a movie, you've got to cut yeah. something. You know, you can't, right. you can, unless you're making a 12-part miniseries, you're not going to be able to do everything. But maybe because it was shorter, the screenwriters were able to say, let's do it. You, you know, another another book I read recently that is, I, I was stunned how close the movie, it's been a long time since I'd read the book and I was stunned how close the movie is, is um, The Exorcist. Mm. Um, I was like, I was like, wow, this, they really just took the book and put it on film. And, and, um, and so it sounds like you're saying that the, that the body is very similar. Well, there, there's two key differences that I would like to uh, touch on uh, a little bit. One of them is in the novella, we actually get to read um, uh, two of Gordy's stories. And yeah. they're obviously not the best section of it. They're kind of hard to get through, but it's almost by design because one of them, the first one, what's crazy about it is reading it. You can tell King himself. Uh, it, it's, it's like this uh, like juvenile delinquent pulpy crime thing that he wrote called stud city. Um, it, and it's, <laughs> it's all so about like this teenager that hates his stepmom and takes his girlfriend's virginity and, and, and all this stuff. Uh, There's but a the character that- named Chico. I just want to get that in there. It's, right. it's so embarrassing to read this. I, 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 it's a white kid named Chico too. Yeah. It's, um, oh, it's so right. bad, but, but it's but the way that he wrote it is actually you can tell him shifting. It's like if uh you know when you're watching a movie and they suddenly somebody's like okay this guy's a filmmaker and we're gonna show you show you you know, like his bad film or whatever and then suddenly you you see the good film you know around it and then you see them making the bad like Ed Wood or something and you know how you have to change the filmmaking yeah. you know uh, thing within there he does that with writing. Uh, and like the grammar is wrong and, and like the, you know, stuff is very amateur and that the focus is on the wrong thing. And like, it really kind of surprised me how the attention to detail that, that he did, you know, going into that, uh, doesn't make it a pleasant read. It's not the best part of the the novella, but it's, it's a fascinating thing, uh, for him to have done. On that, on that topic, before I forget, I just want to, I wouldn't mind doing a little sidebar on king's books within books because i have to admit when i read misery years ago i skipped over the misery book part of it (laughs) you know what right i don't need to read this and what's really interesting to me is that is that king as a writer he's really interested in these stories within his stories like he really you can tell that he sat down and he wrote that misery stuff the the book within the book and was really invested in it you know (laughs) yeah now I, I'm that guy who just wants to be on the A story. Like I skipped over the curse of the Black Pearl in Watchmen or whatever it was called. And I think I just confused two pirate things there. Any Watchmen fans out there are going to be uh, calling for my blood right now. But I'm like, yeah, not interested in this whole uh, story within the story. I just want to get back to uh, you know back to Night Owl and and and, and I. I so I've, I've found that um, I find that he does that, you know, he gets really caught up in that. The other thing that I wanted to touch on is the the filmmakers decided to go in a, a different direction with the one truly horror scene in the uh, novella. And that's when Gordy's Nightmare, 
Um, in the movie, they focus more on Gordy's present. That the nightmare in the movie is him what uh, at his brother's funeral and his father uh, telling him that he wishes it was him instead of his brother that died. Right, right. Um, which is brutal. It is devastating, uh, but it's all about you know visualizing what's going on inside Gordy. You know, this is his, his inner turmoil. This is what he's wrestling with. This is what he's exercising in the movie. The whole movie is about him, you know, coming to terms with who he he is, who, what his place is in the world and coming to terms with his brother's death and the guilt that he feels for, for surviving it. Uh, In the book, uh, it is more of a, the nightmare is more of a jump off of the conversation he has with Chris where Chris is telling him is like, you need to shed us off instantly. It's like, like you actually have potential. You can get out of here. We're going to be in shop class. You know, you go take your college courses when, when you can, you leave us behind because we're going to drag you down. So his nightmare is him and Chris swimming in a lake and Chris is pulled under and he looks down under and it's Teddy uh, under the water and it's Teddy and Vern uh, dead and like bloated corpses of them pulling right. Chris under the yeah. water. Right. And right. Yeah. I rem- I'm remembering all this now, as you say it. And it, and it is the most Stephen Kingy, you know, section down to like the inappropriate d- description of, of them being naked and their wieners flopping around in the water. Uh, it, it is such a striking scene. And then the, the dream ends with Gordy essentially leaving Chris and letting Chris drown and be, you know, be drowned. And he's, He's swimming for it, trying to save himself. And just as he gets to safety, he feels a hand grab his leg and pull him under. And that's when he wakes up. Um, That is such a fascinating, you know, uh, example of an adaptation where the scene in the movie that that wouldn't have worked in the movie that Rob Reiner was telling. That's not the the story that that he was outlier in the rest of the movie. And and it's also, you know, the thing that people take away from Stand By Me is the bonding, even though even though Vern's a dummy and Teddy's a psycho, you know, there, there is something innocent about it. This is, this is their, their, you know, journey into manhood. A 15 year old Teddy is the kid who will shoot up a school and you don't, you know, you're not going to have nostalgia for that, that guy. Right. But right here, you know, he still has the innocence. And, and if you had that nightmare, you know, sequence of, it just, it wouldn't have fit. It just wouldn't have fit with the tone that they're trying to tell of, I mean, the last line of the, of Dreyfus's character rights is, you know, nobody has friends, you know, like they did when they were 12 yeah. and, and, you know, there, it wouldn't have fit, but like, it is such a vividly amazing scene that like, I, I reread it, like, you know, I read it and then reread it again, like whenever I finished it on this reread. Yeah. It's, it's been interesting for me as a writer, one of the biggest lessons that, Stephen King has imparted to me and there's obviously been a lot of them I, I, in fact his book on writing is one of my favorite books of his um yeah that one of my favorite books of his is is not is a non-fiction book about his about his history and his writing process but it's an invaluable tome for any aspiring writer but um one of the things I take took away from the body and is is that it's making your characters memorable by giving them these defining traits like if you think about Teddy to Champ's ear and the way it was melted on the stove, I remember the description in the book of his ear and, and the way his father held it. It's such a unique, odd little flourish and terrible. But it, it to a young mind, t- today as well, but especially back then when I first saw Stand By Me, it it just hooks into your soul. Like you, it makes the character memorable. And as a writer, I, I strive to do that. I, I I, I don't know that I'm successful, but I definitely take that lesson of trying to give your characters these traits that don't necessarily have to be physical traits. Like, yeah, Migsy had one leg, and so you'll remember. Yeah. Him. But it's, yeah. it's more like giving them that defining thing that, that helps them lodge in the brain of the audience because you've only got a certain amount of time. If, you, if, a, if an audience is reading a book or watching a movie, you're only going to give these characters to them for an amount of time. So you've got to make them stick in people's minds. And he was so great, you know? Do you think if you were, you know, thinking about the, uh, the train sequence and the bridge, do you think if you were being chased across a bridge by a train, do you think you would lock up or do you think you'd get all the way across? <laughs> do you think you would jump? I, ooh, it'd be a t- okay, I would try to run and make it across. And if I got a sense that it wasn't going to happen, I'd jump. It would basically be <laughs> How long to- do you give it, though? Like, 
okay, let's say you're halfway across the bridge. The train's coming around the corner, you know, but it's faster than you. Like how, how, how far along do you think you get before you're like, fuck it. I'm, I'm going for the water. And also like in stand by me, like the, the, the rocks and the, you know, the, um, I don't know what the word for it. It's not diversion, but the, the, uh, the slant of the soil and the rocks looks like the embankment. Yeah. The embankment looks like it goes down pretty wide. It looks like the, the river is pretty narrow. So it sort of seems like if you were going to jump, you would have to do it halfway. Anyway, yeah. uh, discuss. I don't know. I feel like I would. I, I feel like I would run until I could hear the the breath of the train. <laughs> until at a certain point when it was loud enough, I would probably just jump out of self preservation and hope to God that I lived. I think I would well, panic and throw myself off the bridge. Almost immediately. <laughs> like, I think I would hear like, huh, huh, and like, see the smokestack and just flail over the bridge. <laughs> you know, yeah, I don't I'm think a- I could, I don't think I could, because if you're running across those ties, right? If you've ever been on, this was another thing we did when, when I was, you know, teenage era, uh, we used to go out to like a bridge that was like this and, and, you know, drink Zimas and shit. Uh, but there was like a foot, maybe 10 inches worth of difference between the boards. You're, on saying that, you're saying that running is extremely difficult. Yeah, I would think so. And I wouldn't trust myself to make it across without fucking, you know, getting a leg stuck in there or. I'm not trying to do a Lost Boys and hang underneath the bridge until it passed over. I don't think. If, okay, I've thought about this at length. I think if the train is coming over, the vibration of the train would be such that. It would rattle your fucking hands off. I think you would fall. As it does in The Lost Boys. It gets rid of you. <laughs> well, they sort of let themselves go in The Lost Boys. You know, they, they're they're sort of putting on a show now because, you know. Well, into that main character, the, the Jason Patrick character, he tries to hold on for as long as he can, but the vibration is so strong. Okay, fair, 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 and, fair, fair. And falls. But, um, yeah, look, you're going to go with jump straight away. I'm going to go with try to run until I realize it's futile and then jump. <laughs> Eric? Uh, I'm a large man, so me running is not a, something that's going to like probably that's work out saying. for me. But, I, but I'm also not terribly fond of height, so I think that I, I would... Uh, honestly, if I was ever in that situation, I would just think of this movie and go, all right, I'm going to try to make it so I can at least you oh. know jump down on the, onto the fucking dirt. You know, on the side, you wouldn't jump down. You would smash down onto the dirt and explode like a bag of blood, you know, <laughs> like from like the end of Tremors. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like at that distance, man, you're you're getting taken out. Yeah. So I, I'm going to dip into a little uh, personally embarrassing uh, story. I started writing on the Internet when I was 17 years old and I was still in high school and uh, that's when I first started writing for Ain't It Cool back then. And I went to my first Comic-Con when I was 19 and Will Wheaton was there. And uh, and I knew that Will Wheaton was going to be there like doing, you know, part of the like celebrity signing stuff. And I was a huge Stand By Me fan and I had a, a British quad which is the British version of, of the US one sheet where the one sheets are, are vertical. They're 27 by 41, or at least they were right. back then. And the British quads were uh, horizontal, which meant that the stand by me one is actually, uh, it's perfectly suited for that. Cause if you remember the poster, that's the horizon poster where it's the silhouette of the four against the mountain backdrop, um, which plays so well vertically. And I had a British quad for that. And I'm like, Oh, I'm going to take that with me to comic-con. I'm going to get Will Wheaton to sign it. And I met him there and, you know, say here, you know, I'll pay you 10 bucks or whatever to, to sign my, my poster. And I uh, unfolded it and he, his eyes lit up. He was like, holy crap. He's like, I don't have one of these. Like, can I buy this off of you? Like, I'll give you, it's like, I'll give you these headshots and I'll do all this other stuff. And I'm like, Hey, sure. How about we do an interview about this movie too, from this website? You know, I, you might've heard about it. There's a thing called the internet and I'll, you know, I can talk to you and put your words up there. And I was 19 and so I interviewed Will Wheaton when I was 19 because of this uh, this exchange. You know, he's very nerdy. Uh, so, of course, he had heard of the website. But in this interview, and I, I went back and looked at it right before, and this is where the embarrassing part comes in. 
he has cited this interview as being like the first time anybody's ever like gotten his personality across. And like, that's what, what I remembered was he is very kind words about how it's a direct like uh Q and a where we're not like cutting out the, the banter before and all that other, other stuff. And he actually felt very good about that. But the embarrassing part is I was looking back at it and I was so green at this stuff and it's very embarrassing, but he, he told a story about, when he and River Phoenix, when they were doing the scene in the movie where River Phoenix's uh, character, Chris Chambers, races Gordy and, and oh, yeah. easily beats him. And he was saying that that was the toughest scene in the movie for, for Will to shoot because he had to, he was way faster than, than River Phoenix was like he, for what he was just a, a, you know, a spitfire, I guess, I guess he was, you know, skinny and, and light and just, (laughs) just uh, took off. So it was hard for him to shoot, to make it look like he was trying his best and, and Chambers easily beat him. And, and I made, and here, here's the joke that'll get me canceled. But uh, I, I decided my 19 year old self thought that would be a good time to, uh, to throw in a joke, I'm like, well, you could, you know, you could probably still beat him today. <laughs> oh, God. And, and thank God he laughed and he was like, that's a good one. And, but, <laughs> corpses. uh, corpses, but no, but I mean, that's just the personality, but, uh, that, that, that is my, my, my brush with, uh, with fame here with Will Wheaton and talking about, about, about the movie. Stuff. All four of the kids ha- are amazing. The performances are great. Right. I think that, Will Wheaton's is the best. Like having having just watched it again recently, his performance is so naturalistic. These little moments, there's a moment early on when three of them are in the treehouse and then Vern comes and knocks and they're all like, Vern, in there. You know, he's like, come on, guys, let me in. And um, breathlessly tells them. But there's a couple of looks that um, – Will Wheaton gives to River Phoenix where he, he st- and he starts cracking up laughing and it is so honest. It, it, it is. Right. I was thinking, God, no part of that, that look and that laughter was acted. It was like, it just really happened and they caught it on camera. His, his performance is one of the most naturalistic child performances I've ever seen. And, 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 and the other kids are good, not taking anything away from River Phoenix or Jerry O'Connell or, or Corey Feldman, but Jesus, he's, naturalistic in that film he's just he's there's not one breath that's dishonest in that movie from him and and he's and he's the focus that that's one thing that i was kind of looking at recently where where uh rob reiner made some statement about how he's like this is how i cracked stand by me is i made gordy the main character and i'm just look and i having reread it i'm like gordy's the main character of the fucking (laughs) two my dude um but uh but even like then king himself said that uh that like I think he said like that Rob was right that Gordy is is the narrator he's not the main character uh, of the story and he's like there's a difference between that I don't really see it but that's what King King says but by um by making Gordy the focus so much of the movie hangs on Will's shoulders and like so much of it boils down to the final sequence uh, with Gordy where he has the standoff with a gun which is uh, different in the book it's Chris Chambers that has the the gun yeah. and I guess that's what he meant that that was yeah. by focusing on Gordy it made by those little changes were making it his story and you know uh, in total and not just about the yeah. group of guys it's um you've got to listen to the commentary if you haven't heard it there's a commentary with Rob Reiner and I think Corey Feldman and a couple of the other kids <laughs> it's amazing to hear like Corey Feldman and um, Will Wheaton, I think, be like, yeah, you know, on weekends we used to go down to the nearest town and we'd go into bars and river with (laughs) beers. And Rob Reiner goes, you hear his voice on the commentary go, I don't want to know about any of this stuff. (laughs) But then he happily happily volunteers that that River Phoenix uh, proudly lost his virginity on that shoot. Right. It just looks like, you know... (laughs) I'm a, I'm a summer obsessive. I, I don't know, maybe it's an Australian thing because so much of our culture in Australia is geared around the beach and, you know, summer and, and, and um, that movie just feels like a summer movie, doesn't it? Like the, they yeah, manage totally. the, the sky, the way the forest looks. It's, I think part of my love for it is that the movie feels like the ultimate summer adventure. Yeah. You know? And I just, yeah, I'll, I'll never stop loving the film, but um, but the the book obviously is just another example of the fact that Stephen King can 
can uh, can write a post-it note and it would be a great film. I think the big takeaway is that if you love the movie, you get got to give a, a huge amount of credit to King for for putting it putting it down. That this this isn't something that you know that uh, the filmmakers you know shaped something out of a kernel of an idea or whatever. This is it's not a Flanagan. This is job. a very faithful direct adaptation that you know makes a few really smart tweaks in in the adaptation process. So it's not just a rote play by play of of what happens without there being its own personality. Yep, totally. And 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 you know, one one thing I would encourage anyone listening to do is to go back and seek out Stephen King's collections of short stories, whether it's Skeleton Crew or his short stories are just a treasure trove of great ideas, you know. And some of them still got made into movies, some good, some bad, you know. We've seen the, you know, the Langoliers and and different things like that, you know. But um they're um I mean, if you go if you go and look at a book like Skeleton Crew, it's just incredible how fertile his 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 imagination is. That um, he can throw away a great idea. If I had any one of those ideas, I would try and expand it into a feature film. I know you, we have you for a limited time. So, what are you working on? Is there something you want to tease? Like um, anything you want to plug? What's going on? Where can people find you? That kind of thing. I wish I could tease. Uh, I'm probably legally bound not to. Um, I will say that one of the things I'm working on and was working on right up until we started this podcast was the Upgrade TV show. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm working on uh, the pilot for that, and that's been really interesting, <laughs> expanding that movie into a bigger framework for story. Um, basically, I'm keeping busy, and I'm also wondering about movies and what's going to happen. <laughs> Even if I do shoot a film, how is it going to be uh, exhibited? Is it just going to be straight to, to Netflix? But yeah, we'll see. Well, thanks so much for joining us, man. Yeah, I, I really you. appreciate you uh, taking the time. Of course. Um, always good to uh, chat to you guys and uh, always fun to talk about Stephen King because he's such a genius and we probably all owe something to Stephen King. If we count ourselves as horror fans, then we owe something of that fandom to him. Um, and so, uh, so, so thanks for having me on and, um, I'll catch you guys another time. All right. Thank you, Lee. Later, man. Cheers. Many thanks to Lee Winnell for joining us. Uh, that man is a very pleasant dude. If I don't see myself, he's super nice. Easter basket full of sunshine. Couldn't ask for a nicer guy. So next week is an important episode for us. Do you know why Scott? No, it is our officially our 19th show oh that's right yes it is been a little confused because of the numbering system on uh on on things but this is technically the 19th episode is that correct it is it will read 19 on your podcast or whatever app (laughs) of -hmm. choice it will say 19 dot and then this episode which will be the dead zone one great book great movie uh, and also very interesting, and I'm going to pretend like we did this intentionally, but I believe that's the first instance of the number 19 having an important part of of one of King's stories. We definitely did that intentionally. I we wanna, totally meant to do that. You know, <laughs> that it was uh, not an accident. Another KingCast exclusive. Uh, we're, we're breaking that one wide open. It's, it's also a, a, a pretty big guest. A pretty big guest, pretty big title on the 19th episode. We're we're, uh, we're very happy about that. We can tease that the guest is a director and an mm-hmm. actor. Mm-hmm. There's... Mm. I know. I'm not trusting myself to say anything on this one. So let's just say it's somebody you know and somebody you, I'm sure, will love to hear talk about the Dead Zone. Yes. I, I will, I'll tease this about the show. This isn't really a tease about the guest, but... I'll say I expected, um, given this guest's background and the source material, I was expecting this episode to be a little more, a lot more political than it than it turned out turned out being, um, mm. which was sort of an interesting curveball for me as a host. I didn't see that coming. We do like dunk on Trump a little bit, so there is that. Uh, apologies in advance to the the eight people out there who are super duper Trump supporters that listen to the show. <laughs> We, they, 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 I have we retained eight? Oh <laughs> Lord, I I would be surprised if we still have that many. I saw I was getting dinged for that on on iTunes a while back, but um, yeah, it's not as political as I thought it was going to be. 
some light dunking, but not the uh, the Dunkapalooza I was I was expecting, and and probably for the better because I think what you know it this episode did sort of turn into is uh, is more interesting than that. Yeah, I agree. And then we have another thing dropping this week. Um, that's uh, for our Patreon subscribers, particularly the uh, patrons in the Heil Gunslinger tier. Uh, you're going to get our next KingCast commentary that's coming this Friday at patreon.com backslash the KingCast. Uh, we were doing 1990, is it 97s? I keep fucking this up. It is 97. I keep thinking it's 95 for some reason. doesn't matter. We're doing the Night Flyer. That's the title for anyone that's like, I can't get a copy of the Night Flyer anymore. Yes, you can. It's fully available on YouTube. And has apparently been there for some years. So whoever is holding the rights, if they gave a shit, we figured they would have said something by now. But you can stream that commentary, watch the movie on YouTube. And there is also a drinking game uh, element that goes along with this one that if you play along like I do, you will be uh, pretty tore up by the time uh, this, <laughs> this bad boy is over with. <laughs> yeah, this movie is pretty ridiculous. And we got a really good guest uh, to come help us walk through this oh, Miguel yeah. Ferrer <laughs> starring um, classic. Yeah. Bakun, a uh, noted Twitter personality, but Bakun, who is a photographer in real life, but that's, that's not probably how most of our listeners will be uh, familiar with him. Uh, he came to play. He is, as Eric pointed out, a big Miguel Ferrer fan. And um, I think that one's going to be pretty funny. Again, uh, you can go to our Patreon, patreon.com slash the King cast. Uh, sign up and get the awesome commentary and you can always find us on Twitter at KingCast19. All right. All thank right. you guys. We'll see you next week. See y'all. See y'all.